Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, where we analyze the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue of Strategica, the relationship between the United States and Russia. And joining us now is one of the authors in this issue, Kyron Skinner, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, author and associate professor of political science at Carnegie Mellon, where she's also the founding director of the Center for International Relations and Politics. Professor Skinner, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, your focus in your piece for Strategica is really on how the U.S.-Russian relationship bears on the Middle East. So let's start with the big picture there. You write in the piece, and I'm quoting you here, since the end of the Cold War, the United States has maintained its status as the dominant great power in the Middle East. The Obama administration, however, seeks to reverse decades of U.S. diplomacy and security arrangements in the Middle East by simply withdrawing. In doing so, it's creating a regional power vacuum that Russia appears eager to fill, end quote. So give us the broad overview of what's happening there. What developments point to this sort of newfound reticence on behalf of the U.S., and what developments indicate that we have this Russia eager to collect the spoils of that? Well, on the United States side, um, there's just overwhelming, clear evidence of a shift away from the Middle East, um, as stated by um, President Obama during the um, early months of his presidency, but also Senator, Senator Obama during his presidential campaign. Um, talked about how he um, opposed the war in Iraq um, and wanted to bring U.S. troops home. Um, Most Americans want troops home at this point, but the administration has been um, unusually pointed in declaring an end of of U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as top national security priorities, regardless of what's happening on the ground in those countries. So early on in his presidency, Um, Barack Obama declared that the U.S. would withdraw from Iraq, which, um, and in fact, the U.S. did um, withdraw. Soon thereafter, there was a declaration that the U.S. would withdraw from Afghanistan, um, and we've been on a steady march to moving out of that country as well, um, with the expectation that by the end of um, 2014, the the United States will have all but a residual security force in, in that country. So it's an administration that has seen its role as ending wars, um, not always tied to a larger strategy for the region, but in fact, as um, the administration has made it clear that it's leaving these military conflicts, it's also um, declared that it is pivoting um, toward Asia or rebalancing toward Asia um, with a greater focus on the Indo-Pacific region um, where the U.S. will be better positioned to compete um, with the only great power in that area, um, that being China. Um, and so in the middle of these hot wars um, and, and a broadening global war on terror that expands from North Africa down to Yemen, Um, you have a U.S. that's beginning to look the other way. So in that piece on Russia um, and the U.S. and the Middle East, I'm trying to make the case that we have two great powers doing different, um, having different approaches to the region. 
one okay. of the West, which has been so dominant there, is moving out, and Russia, which appears to be moving in. Okay, so let's talk about the specific impact on some of the countries in the region. We'll start with Egypt. This is a country that used to have pretty strong relations with the Soviet Union back in the 1950s and 60s. And, of course, a country that's now been roiled with unrest for the past few years, first with Hosni Mubarak being forced from the presidency, then with Mohamed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood being removed from power earlier this year. Uh, American relations with Egypt seem to have become strained during this period. What does that mean for the Russian-Egyptian relationship? It opens the door for a re-entry of Russia into Egypt and really into um, the Levant in a way that it hasn't been able to find its um, a foothold since it was expelled in the early 1970s by Anwar Sadat. And that's what makes it so troubling in addition to everything else that's going on, on in the Middle East is that um, you know Russia remains something of a great power, though there's an internal implosion that can't be denied in terms of its economy, its mortality rates. Um, the abortion rates, the just all kinds, every social statistic is troubling there. Um, and it doesn't look like it's a viable country um, in the long run, but it does remain something of a great power. And for the U.S. to um, kind of abandon a historic and important ally, um, a country that was the first to recognize Israel um, in the Arab world, um, while the Russians come in and make common cause with um, the rebel groups um, and and some in the government, it's really troubling because once they're back in, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for the U.S. to play um, the role that it's played for, for more than a half century. Um, the Russians don't have to even do as much as the U.S. did to become a player in the region in terms of, you know, bringing resources there, but their sheer presence... And the credibility that um, Vladimir Putin br brings, um, given his um, diplomatic victory um, in Syria, being the country that, in fact, um, has helped broker um, the deal to um, end um, Syria's chemical weapons program, I think bodes well for a stronger Russia in Egypt and all through the region. Um, and the U.S. exit makes it almost easier. We're just really providing the pathway for the Russians. Well, let's talk about that since you bring up Syria because a few months ago this was at the forefront of the news You know, in reaction to the regime uh, using chemical weapons. It looked like there was a very strong possibility that there was going to be an American military intervention in Syria. And then at the 11th hour, you have Vladimir Putin sweep in with a deal that ostensibly gets the weapons out of the regime's hand and saves President Obama some face for a conflict that it really seemed at that point as if he didn't have – the stomach for. And then, of course, Putin famously writes this sort of triumphalist, chest-thumping op-ed in the New York Times afterwards, where he, among other things, denies that it was even the Assad regime that used the weapons in the first place, and sort of gratuitously denigrates the whole concept of American exceptionalism. So in the context of this piece that you've written, the prompt at Strategica asks whether Russia is an ally or an enemy or sort of something in between. In this specific case, with Syria, uh, the answer to that question seems fairly murky. How would you diagnose the Russian behavior there and what motivated it? Well, um, you know, it's hard to completely understand the motives of Vladimir Putin, but at a very kind of surface level, it's, it was an opportunity that um, was just waiting um, in part 
um, arranged by the United States, which has watched a three-year conflict um, take place where thousands of people have been slaughtered and regional allies such as the, um, the, the Jordanians and the Saudis, among others, have asked the U.S. to play something of a leadership role to help galvanize a regional response, um, to, help, to help better understand um, who the, um, the, the um, rebels, the good rebels are. Um, and we haven't had leadership from the U.S. And it's not even been like Libya, where the administration decided to kind of stand behind the NATO allies as they moved in. It's been just the United States simply has not showed up in the region um, in response to this conflict. And so for anything that Vladimir Putin did would look victorious, given that the U.S. had um, at its disposal um, countries surrounding Syria that were asking for its help. And since the administration, the Obama administration, narrowly tied the U.S. response to um, the chemical weapons attack um, against children and others as a humanitarian transgression by the um, Syrians, and then wasn't sure what it wanted to do after the president announced a military strike was possible, if indeed the Russians came in and helped resolve the very issue that the U.S. said was at stake in this conflict, um, the use of chemical weapons and the possession of them by the Assad regime. It was, to me, an easy victory for, um, for Vladimir Putin, and he probably saw it that way. He didn't have to do very much, um, engage in some diplomacy, and um, focus on this specific issue that the U.S. said was basically all that was tied to the U.S. national interest. So the U.S. national interest was in fact addressed by the Russian government with the U.S. not having to lift much of a finger. That's the problem here. For an American president to say, here is my priority in this, this very complicated civil conflict, and then stand back as a strategic um, adversary in the region and the world, the Russians for the U.S., um, comes in and helps resolve the conflict. I think it's troubling about um, the U.S. as a predominant power in the international system. The U.S. is nearly 50% of, of all defense spending in the world. Um, it has a, a, a stronger economy than um, all countries from a GDP standpoint, except for the EU. To have Vladimir Putin be the power and peace broker here, I think really does not help the United States in terms of its credibility in the Middle East and the broader international community. What about the situation with Iran? You have these multilateral talks going on with Tehran right now in Geneva, uh, of which Russia, as a permanent member of the Security Council, is part. This is one area of Middle East policy where the Obama administration has made explicit is a priority for them. Uh, preventing a nuclear Iran. What are the prospects that the Russians will be helpful at all in that process? I don't think that the Russians um, have the incentive to be helpful because we've already they've already watched us in Syria, um, and they've watched that we won't do very much. Who are the clear Russian allies in the Middle East? If they aren't Syria and Iran, there aren't any at all. So to help facilitate. Um, these talks in Geneva, I don't think, will necessarily be in the interest of the Russians. And that's why you've got the Saudis acting up um, and acting very concerned and deciding to take a level of agency that we haven't 
um, necessarily expected the Saudis to take, but in fact, it's really no surprise. They're talking about, you know, the possibility of their own um, nuclear weapons program. There's been some, there have been some reports about that, though. Uh, we still need to better understand um, what's going on there. But the Russians are just watching um, as the United States goes round after round and talks with the Iranians, while the Iranians appear to be buying time as they march forward on their own um, chemical or their own nuclear program. And I'm not sure that this is a definitive way to, to approach the Iranian issue. Um, there's a lot of talk within the United States, some even in the Obama administration, not just on Capitol Hill, about lessening sanctions against Iran. That just, to me, suggests to the Russians that we don't have the stomach for a long-term, definitive um, um, battle with the Iranians about not going nuclear. Um, so for the Russians, all of this is a period, represents a period in which they're watching an ineffective United States in the very region of the world um, where most of the hot spots are happening, be it related to terrorism and the resurgent um, al-Qaeda in Iraq and the, um, the al-Qaeda that links Iraq and Syria or down in Yemen or in North Africa and parts of Nigeria. The U.S. is just not providing leadership. And that brings Iran, Syria... Egypt and the global war and terror all together, a similar story of the inability of the United States to provide the kind of leadership in a region of the world that has been um, largely stabilized by the presence of, of the United States there. I want to pick up on that thread that you mentioned a moment ago about Saudi Arabia because it is fascinating. It's one of the most interesting developments of light in the Middle East is the, the sort of growing tendency for the Saudis to go their own way essentially. They recently turned down a seat on the UN Security Council. Uh, the weapons, the nuclear weapons which you mentioned, there are also some suggestions now that they may be developing a kind of modus vivendi with Israel based on the mutual concern about Iran. Uh, what does that behavior, that newfound sort of agency for the Saudis mean for both the United States and Russia in the strategic analysis of the region? It means that there's just another major player that's willing to do something. And the Saudis, it's not that they have never done anything, but um, I, I think it complicates the game for the United States and, and for Russia in terms of the U.S. first. Um, the Saudis have been a, an important, reliable um, ally, at, ally at times. Um, they have, you know, attempted to lead the U.S. astray to have it support kind of jihadist um, um, in, in, in conflicts like Afghanistan during the, the, the um, Soviet war there. Um, but the Saudis have been an important source of kind of pillar of U.S. strength and stability in the region. And when you add Saudi, the Saudi situation on top of the Egyptian situation, in addition to Syria, it just doesn't bode well for the future for the um, of U.S. Middle East relations, and it's not clear to me that it facilitates what is Secretary Kerry's primary objective in the region, and that is to get a peace deal between the Israelis and the Arabs. It doesn't facilitate that in the larger context. So, in fact, the U.S. may be in this current period 
undercutting what is indeed a noble objective, if it can ever happen, um, some kind of resolution to the Arab-Israeli dispute that leads to, you know, a two-state solution. I don't think this administration is in a position to have the credibility to pull that off, given that it has, on more than one occasion, announced that it is moving out of the Middle East. We saw that, as I noted earlier, with the Asia Pivot announced um, two years ago um, by um, Secretary Clinton, but then more recently by National Security Advisor Susan Rice, um, she um, kind of put forth a new Middle East doctrine that gives a couple of priorities, the Arab-Israeli peace deal being one, no chemical weapons in Syria being two, um, and then third, um, a non-nuclear Iran. Um, if those are the main or priorities for the Obama administration, we're going to see a Saudi Arabia getting stronger and tougher. We are also, to your point about Russia, we're going to see a Russia that just begins to move around the Middle East because we have um, more than signposted where we're going and what we're going to do. Right. The final question, because you mentioned in your piece that there, there are areas of common interest between the United States and Russia. Both countries, for instance, have their own problems with Islamic extremism. And of course, we kind of saw how those problems can intersect with the Boston bombings earlier this year. So looking forward, how optimistic are you about the prospects for cooperation between the United States and Russia? And what factors do you think the strength of the relationship is going to turn on? You know, that's been one of the more puzzling aspects, I think, both during the U.S.-Soviet era and now in this um, post-Cold War era about um, relations between U.S. and Russia. You would think that um, the issue of terrorism would really bind the two great powers together because they face threats, and they face substantial ones. Russia, in its near abroad, in the Caucasus, um, also, the fact that it has an emerging Muslim population um, that's growing um, um, restless um, in part for no, no small reason because um, the, um, the, the Russian government hasn't found a way to integrate the Muslim it's, – it's growing Muslim population into the larger society and it is a growing population, large families um, and while the Slavs are declining in population – um, and so it's it's helping to perhaps foster um, terrorism, but there hasn't been the kind of cooperation one would expect um, in this arena. Um, and I think part of that speaks to um, um, some of the larger differences between the two sides. Um, also, I think there's a lack of clarity, um, at least in the U.S. side now, about what it means to be fighting terrorism. The Obama administration doesn't use the terminology of global war and terror. Um, many in the U.S., not just um, in the White House or in the Democratic Party, but even on the Republican side, haven't made um, the global war on terror a priority in the last few years. After 9-11, there was a kind of rally around the flag on this issue, but we don't have that um, going on now. So I think until we have even rhetorical clarity in the United States about um, the global war on terror um, and where it fits into the larger national security strategy of the U.S. Notice it wasn't mentioned in um, um, National Security Advisor Rice's um, recent declaration about the Middle East focus. 
um, of the Obama administration. So until we have a better understanding of where the global war on terror ranks in the national security priorities of the U.S., and until there's a broader consensus among Americans, which will only come about when leadership um, in both parties makes it clear that there is still a global threat from jihadists, not just those in al-Qaeda, I don't think that we can expect a coming together of the U.S. and Russia on this issue. There needs to be some better understanding of the U.S. itself about this particular long-term challenge. All right. My thanks to our guest, Kyron Skinner, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, author and associate professor of political science at Carnegie Mellon. You can read her piece and those of other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.